Baby, here I am. I'm a man on the scene. I can't get you what you want, but you got to come home with me. I got no, I got no, oh my God, won't I'm in store. I love you better than him. That ain't nothing but ten cent love and hey little can let it out your candle cause the mama on shoulder and the man gets around down down to down 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 to down I can't I am a man on your scene I can't give you what you want to be done to go home with me Getting back into chocolate milks. Loyal viewers of the Flix vlogs will remember that I went through a chocolate milk phase at the beginning of quarantine, and now I am back where I started. It really is delicious, I have to say. The chocolate melts with the milk, creates a sensuous. Uh, Truly indulgent combination of uh, flavor and texture. Okay, I wasn't going to mention it, but babies are not workers. Why are people mad at that? Kids can't work. The only way you make money in our capitalist system is through wage relationships if you're not an owner. So kids can't work. So that means the more kids you have and you... The jobs pay per person, so if you get wages as, an as a parent or as two parents, the more kids you have, the farther spread the money is among mouths, and therefore the more the, the inequality exists. How is this a thing to be controversial? How can you get mad at that unless you have, like everybody online, confused uh, moral arguments with empirical questions? Like, they hear this, they're non-workers, and they think, oh my god, he's saying they're bad. He's saying that they're parasites. No, he's saying that they can't contribute to the labor market and get money on the labor market, which is the only place you can get money if you don't have capital. And so therefore, the more families you, more, the bigger your family is, the, hard, the more inequality will be between you and somebody who has the same job and makes the same pay but has fewer kids. And the only reason, the only thing this might, any of this makes sense is if people are hostile to the idea of people having children. They think we should not be encouraging it. Through all their leftism, what they really are is a eugenicist progressive who wants to make sure that people don't irresponsibly overbreed, as if that's the real problem we're dealing with in this fucking country. But anyway, I won't say anything more about it because it's a dumb Twitter argument. If people don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. It's some bullshit people have been yelling about Matty B. Stats, my boy Matt Bruding, who... Look, the man has the ARGs. You do not have the ARGs. The people yelling at... The thing that makes me most annoyed about it is everyone who is trying to yell at Matt Burning knows less than he does about what they're talking about. Who are they are? Because... And they... Half the arguments are made up and misunderstandings of the, of the point for that very reason. They literally don't understand what he's saying because they're too dumb. But they... They decide they're going to take him on. Fools. Fools. And the thing is, is that, like, the people who, 
The closest thing to a real coherent critique of it is it's not actually the labor market that it crosses inequality, it's capitalism. Okay, no, no shit. That's not what he's interested in. Matt B's, Matty B's entire idea as like his contribution to the public good is that I am very good at the args and the numbers. That means my job should be to create policy ideas that presupposes the existing political structure that we live within. That presupposes capitalism because we're not getting rid of it right away. There's nothing to be done about capitalism right now. But as a broader, a broader left project, having policies to talk about and push for in the, cur in the reality of the world we live in, that it, that's, it's not any less valuable than anything else anybody's doing on the political spectrum. Let's just say that. It's certainly not uh, 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 undermining any like greater revolutionary energy. It's providing a service. Now, you can say it's useless. You can make an argument that there's no point at this point in the, in, in the, the decline of capitalism to even be uh, uh, humoring the notions that we can do any kind of systemic reform to this thing. There's no reforming this, as people like to say. And to that I say, okay, fine. But then don't get mad at Matt Bruning because he doesn't agree and he's not operating from those principles. You're essentially yelling at Stradivarius because he doesn't make pianos. He, is, he, does, he does wonkery. Therefore, he presupposes that you can do some sort of change to capitalism that could move it in the direction of socialism and make people's lives better at the same time. If you say that project is dead, you might be right. I could, might be persuaded. But that has nothing to do with what he is saying. And getting mad at him is stupid. And it's about positioning yourself as somehow smarter or more informed or more right or more good or more virtuous than him in the marketplace of ideas and personalities that's online. And it's because everybody's a fucking idealist. Everybody is an anarchist at the end of the day, no matter what your tendency is. If you've really invested the discourse with meaning in your life, you're an anarchist. You believe that it's all about phase-shifting reality through persuading people because how else could you explain using all that time and energy to make arguments on the internet? Unless you really think if enough people hear you, you can convince them to change their beliefs which will somehow change their action. As though their beliefs are not the byproduct of what they have to do to survive. Or where they find themselves in the, in the hierarchy of precarity within neoliberalism. As if that's not what generates their ideology. I'm not, I, am pro, I mean, I'm projecting in that I'm describing what I'm doing too, yes. But I've also accepted that. And... Part of my, what I talk about is an attempt to break me and people listening away from the cycle and using examples of how if you don't do that, you end up wasting your very life. You're not even having the fun, you're not even having the most fun version of, of diverting yourself. There are more fun ways to get your rocks off than this. There are more, there are less, uh, there are ways that do less to like tighten you up into a ball of anxiety the way that obsessing about online politics does. There are ways to get off that get you off, like actually relieve and, and, and out, end in orgasm instead of this like agonized edging that is what political ideology uh, as subculture amounts to. Like go to David Buster's for Christ's sake.
virtual Dave and Buster's. My vibes are good. I feel good. I feel pretty good lately. I feel like I'm in a good place. I think part of it is because finally understanding the scope and structure of what I want to put down on paper, which I really feel like I have to do at some point to justify keep doing these because it is indulgent to do this. Like this is easier than like a harder but maybe more meaningful attempt to express myself could be. Uh, but as long as I feel like I'm doing them with a, a, a real near-term goal in mind, uh, they, they're very fulfilling. So I feel good. Other parts of my life also, I think, not coincidentally, going better, going well. Because it's just I'm better able to deal with everything around me, including stressful stuff. That means I appreciate the good stuff more. It's good. And of course, a lot of that, 99.9% .9 of that is not me. It's not my mindset. It's my absolutely privileged condition. I'm in a little ball. I'm, I'm, I'm tucked away. I'm, I'm genuinely not affected by this slow motion catastrophe of living in America. It gives me the freedom to work out my stuff and feel, and, 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 and like, you know, address my relationship to, you know, my indulgent artistic pursuit of a career, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that's, you know, that really is, I think, why I understand people who do turn into the gay states communism fantasy, because they imagine, like, people who feel are relatively cosseted within the structure but also feel a sense of guilt and participation in exploitation because they do participate in exploitation. And then they imagine, well, if everybody could have this, we'd be okay. But the problem is this is too bound up in your personal pleasure. It's too bound up in consumption as lifestyle. What this is is an atomized, uh, despiritualized, uh, socially dead existence that has to be sustained uh, through the uh, transference of meaning onto objects and then the consumption of those objects. The physical pleasure, using surplus to assuage existential anxiety through consumption is the engine of everyone's idea of what the good life is, even mine in my little bubble, being my little, in my little artisan bubble, which of course is still connected to networks of exploitation that I participate in and benefit from. And I feel that same spike. And you want everybody to feel good, like you. But if everybody felt good like you, it would be a nightmare because it would require uh, full automation, And but it would end up with us being the Wall-E people because we would have no spiritual drive. It would be, it would be, it would, it's, it's dead. Like, uh, like, that's the part of, you know, uh, like, the conservative response to, uh, to modernism, you know, like, the, the, the Meister reactionary argument against the Enlightenment and the French Revolution is that you're losing a, a, a felt spiritual communal identity, a, 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 a crucial part of life when you pull, it, pull human existence out of its social embeddedness. And the thing is, they're right about that. But the problem is, there's nothing you can do about it. That process is inevitable. We are driven. We are going, as soon as we accumulated the capital surplus to create the cultural institutions that gave us permission to, to hyper-exploit 
the way capitalism did. The technology, both uh, in terms of physical things like electricity, steam engine, whatever, uh, metallurgy, uh, and then social technologies like the printing press and Protestantism. And, uh, and humanism. Or, 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 and yeah, the Enlightenment. As soon as those, as soon as those tools exist in the hands of humans, they're going to use them. And and accumulating that surplus requires the these, the 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 uh, eviction of people from the rural idiocy of smallholding uh, tenant farming into the urban environment of markets and exchange, because that's where fucking surplus gets made. Or that's where surplus gets gets lived. It gets, gets gets taken from the country into these concentrated areas. And that was going to pull us away from that social network, no matter what. The question is, how are we going to uh, integrate that? You know, the 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 ghost of that into the institutions we were creating. And we have had done a bad job so far. But I argue that if we do build any alternative, any uh, class collaborative challenge to the existing paradigm it will come with a uh, a spiritual dimension that will be infused throughout its structure whereby and it won't be religion it will be a civic it will be a civic translation of the old religious feelings a modernized secularized spirituality that will emerge as a byproduct of and generator of class consciousness and class mobilization. But that's why you can, that's why uh, that's why we have to work together because it's far too easy otherwise to convince yourself uh, that the perpetuation of a status quo that sees you as a fat happy little sack of, uh, of dopamine is actually justice. I don't really have any thoughts about Maradona. I'm not a soccer guy. He seemed like a pimp. He seemed like an absolute pimp and a legend. The guy was doing bumps after uh, after scoring goals. King shit. Cheated and then kind of admitted it uh, in the World Cup against... <clears throat> Excuse me. The disgusting English. Anybody who beats the English is a king, of course. I hear. But I'm not a huge, uh, huge soccer head. I'm not a footballer, mate. I'm not actually a gooner. That's a bit when I say that. I'm not a gooner. I'm not a bloody gooner, mate. Yeah, Dudes Rock has definitely taken a taken it on the chin here with the death of Maradona. He was a Dudes Rock icon. What is a like a jock who embodies all of the most zesty hedonistic clichés of the sporting life combined with a you know, perhaps theatrical and perhaps indulgent but still deeply felt left-wing religious sentiment. You don't see that too often. Cuz it's not like you know, yeah, yeah, like a lot of a lot of Famous people have like fake politics, just like a lot of non-famous people have fake politics. But he was like hanging out with Fidel Castro. That's pretty fucking cool. It seems like another one of those type of people they don't make anymore. 
the edges have all been smoothed off. Somebody asked for a book recommendation on American history, which is kind of a hilariously wide topic, but uh, I would say that to cover a subject, a, an area of time that's generally understudied by even, like, you know, casual but serious uh, American history hobbyists or, or academics or something, is the, the antebellum period, uh, like the development of the, of the first two party systems before the Civil War. And uh, Sean Willens, who is an insufferable lib, uh, awful politics, but a damn good historian, uh, which is you know true of a lot of people, uh, wrote a book called The uh, Rise of American Democracy from Jefferson to Lincoln, which I think does an, uh, an incredibly good job of laying out the dynamics between the two political, the, the political factions that emerged out of the constitutional order. Uh, he is very uh, clearly pro-democracy. He's pro. Uh, he's in favor of the Jacksonian turn. He, his essential premise is, is that once uh, the two like factions, factional uh, of government, like broke up the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, uh, what happened is, is you saw a general correlation among the Federalists and then later Whigs with restrictions on the franchise. In terms of uh, like I, uh, voting, uh, poll taxes and uh, you know uh, uh, land ownership requirements, uh, age limits, things like that, um, and the Jeffersonian and then Jacksonian party was uh, favored expanding the franchise, uh, and that boiled down to uh, the fact and 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 Willens is right that you know the democratic urge like if that we're going to assign a progressive value to the America's democratic notions of one person, one vote, that we now sort of take a sacrosanct, then that drive, even if it was at the, at the behest of a party that was essentially made up of, at that point, uh, drunk, uh, award-healing crooks in the, uh, uh, in the cities and drunk, Indian-scalping, uh, Scotch-Irish psychopaths in the countryside. But they were the people, and what they wanted, expansion, what they wanted, land. What they wanted, the ability to get some, to be have no man be their master, was the democratic impulse. And the Federalists slash Whigs who wanted us to, hey, how about we slow down and build up a little bit so that we can compete in this new, like, global, uh, political, uh, this global trade system that we find themselves ourselves in, and this, like, alliance system. Like, we are now part of, like, an emerging global world system, an economic world system. We have to participate in that. We're not going to be able to fuck around in our little sandboxes. We need to fucking have an actual coherent government power that can compete at the global stage. But the people who understood that were people who were at the heart of commerce in cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia. They weren't out in the countryside, which is where the, the people were breeding like rabbits and more were coming in every day. And so these people who had the best interest, I would argue of the the United States as a political project, even in addition to, yes, like, were they looking to exploit labor? Absolutely. Were, did they want to financialize the economy and, like, bring people under a yoke of, like, economic compulsion? Yes, but that's government. 
The only reason that feels like a fucking, uh, some sort of Norman yoke is because we're operating under the delusional notion of individual liberty that can only be persist in the fake, uh, eternal expanse of America where everyone has operated off the assumption of land as being infinite. Can you imagine that you can be ungoverned because you can be subsistent? You can live in a current world, you can interact socially, you don't have to go back to pre-civilization, you can be civilized, but you cannot be compelled because you can always grow your own fucking stuff. Even though to do anything with that, to, you know, buy more, to uh, improve your land, to uh, inc uh, to acquire the fruits of surplus, like the finished goods that you can only get by trading with cities. Uh, any of that requires cooperation that does involve a, a alienation of authority to a third party to adjudicate these uh, exchanges. You have to give up some liberty. And because there were so many people who had an interest in just expansion in its own right, Southern slave Southern slavercrats who made up the intellectual backbone of this movement, by the way. They were all Southern slave owners who made up the, the, the intellectual heavyweights behind the Jeffersonian expression of this political reality. Um, demanded this endless expansion, but without any ability to hook any of this together, internally improve, create canals, create networks, uh, create a national debt. Reduce tariffs between areas so you don't have to pay fucking uh, 15 cents every time you go across a state line with your uh, bunch of pelts or whatever the fuck. And that's the two-party system. It's the superego and the id, with the ego being like the overall project of capital accumulation in North America. And that's the party structure. And so at that point, the democratic impulse, which we now, which we now post working class as a, the rising of the working class and then the arising of racial uh, and gender, you know, uh, 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 resistance to those hierarchies. Now the democratic experience in our minds is connected to uh, this virtuous sort of, you know, uh, on the left we'd say like a working class socialist demand for, for, you know, freedom and liberty for everybody, meaning a freedom from and a freedom to. But that was not the original conception of American freedom. It has been turned into that, or I should say, like proletarian, like closest thing, like mass little guy, you know, because we all imagine that we're regular people in this country, no matter what we own. Uh, that that the definition, the democratic definition of who that is and how we conceive of it is different. It was individual Freemason or uh, yeoman families striking out into the wilderness to make unfettered fortunes. And so Willens is sympathetic to the Democrats, just on the argument, like, hey, this is the Democratic impulse, you know? Uh, but there's also a book called What Half God Wrought by uh, Daniel Howe that covers the same period, uh, but from the point of view, essentially, like, as a, as a uh, partisan of the Whigs, and saying that all the stuff that these hillbillies wanted required the creation of these institutions. And the thing is, that's the way, like, the reason that this is a dialectical process is because these two things need each other. These two things are inextricably linked. But the nature of their, the social relationships of the people who live in, these, in this system, the fact that people who understand the need for trade and the need for strong government and the need for organs of state live in cities all concentrated together, sipping tea with one another, 
And the people who think that the next thing, the only thing to do is grab the next uh, acre of land you can find are all just running off into the countryside and just larger in number and only like aggregate through their votes and have no other understanding of a desire other than just personal advancement of their family unit, their ability to pile up. That means they have to fight each other, even though they need each other. And in the fighting, you create a new thing. And the fighting led to eventually the whole thing blowing up because the sharpening of the contradictions and the Civil War, which should have, like I said, and maybe could have, without Lincoln dying, augured in a, 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 a self-conscious, like, I wouldn't say working class, but like proto-proletarian alliance between ex-slaves essentially the mobilized yeomanry and working class of the North in the form of the Union Army uh, and the Republican Party against the... And, and hopefully, the, uh, the small-holding and poor white population of the South could, be, could have united to essentially... Instead of making a, a, a treaty, which is essentially what happened, like the United States over the decades of the Re Reconstruction worked out a peace treaty with the Southern slaveocracy, the terms of which were, all right, no more slavery, but racial caste system and compelled labor through uh, sharecropping and uh, convict leasing that is equivalent to slavery. And then they spit their finger and they that made the deal. That was the real end of the Civil War. It was the treaty ended with... The, with the real treaty was not at Appomattox. It was uh, the uh, it was the 1877 uh, uh, agreement to allow Rutherford Hayes and the Republicans to hold the White House, even though Samuel Tilden had won the popular and probably electoral vote in exchange for ending Reconstruction. That was the real end of the Civil War. And the reason it ended on those terms is because. Any capacity to create that coalition was destroyed by Johnson, essentially, by immediately, by immediately reimposing in power the former Confederate Army and the former Confederate state apparatus and its ruling class. If they had been surrounded, they would have fought back. Like it wouldn't have been; they wouldn't have went meekly. The Re Reconstruction still would have been violent, but the fight would have been essentially a continuation of the Civil War, which had ended with the North in a dominant position, and with this new coalition of forces, would have been sufficient to finally win a actual unconditional surrender, like the one U.S. Grant demanded at Donaldson. And then you could have initiated a new conception of liberty, a new conception of democratic freedom, and built a, a structure, a governing structure, around that presumption, not maintain this fucking noose, this, this, this chain around our neck of the Constitution, which is predicated on this notion of unfettered individual rulership, literal ownership, not just of land, of course, but of people, and the labor of people through direct dominion. When people say, won the war, lost the peace. I think that's, I don't know, maybe the better way to think about it is, is that the war didn't end until the end of Reconstruction. Like, they had a peace treaty, and then they negotiated the settlement. Like, the Treaty of Westphalia took years. 
You don't say the thing ended until that treaty was signed. And the turning point was the Lincoln assassination. Hard to get around that opinion. Hard to get around that in my mind. That that really is like an America history. Because you look back at what we have and it's like, yeah, we really never had a chance, did we? All this land drove us insane. All this land is what drove us insane. And all this land is what meant that absent Lincoln, we were bound to do what we did. Absent Lincoln, it was over. They were going to recapitalize the South, reconstruct the planter economy, which required essentially, required compelled labor because it was labor intensive. The thing that ended slavery in the South, like the condition of slavery, was automation of agriculture. The thing that led to the Great Migration was the fact that in the 19-teens and 20s, automation had caught up to the agricultural sector to the extent that it was much, much less labor-intensive to, to get the crops that, uh, that were able to be grown as staples in the South. And that led to a huge reduction in the demand for rural agricultural labor. And so black people moved to the urban centers to become part of that army of industrial labor. That's how you create a working class, is people move to this, from the countryside to the cities for one reason or another either enclosure of some kind or technological change. But it's, it's, to me, it's easy to imagine a way where if the, if the coalition of forces in power is different, that instead of reestablishing planter agriculture, the, the yeoman model that had settled the North and that the, the Republicans had extended into the West with the Homestead Act during the war, saying, go out there, grab some land, and you stay there, it's yours. Could have been extended southward. But the reason it didn't have to be is because it was able to be extended outward. We could always get more of that yeoman land out there, meaning there's no pressure for any kind of internal... Uh, uh, that means that the ability to just keep the South as just this cash cow persisted instead of forcing the confrontation over the land. Because if, if yeomanry had been extended through confiscation and distribution of former plantation land, the 40 acres and a mule, you would have broken up the system, the structure of, uh, of racial oppression that underlines Southern life, even if you don't necessarily break up the, the, the habits and the important thing is, is if you extend this redistribution, redistribution of land to poor whites and you make the consequence of the Civil War that their lives improve, then you change the dynamic of every relationship these people had. But also there's those engines, those infernal mills out in the East, and they demand, they demand, they demand, they demand, they need Fucking cotton. They need staples. They chew them up, spit them out. It's not that cold. It's not that cold. It's been a relatively warm November, I'll say that. We've hit it 60 a couple times. It's going to be 60 the rest of the week, I think. I think this is, you know, part of our new normal that we all love so much. Don't we love it, folks? We love it. We love it. It's so warm. I got to say, though, that given the fucking... Uh, pandemic and the quarantine I very much appreciate it because you know I can only really see people outside and uh, 
I've been able to see them later than I thought I would be able to because it was getting really cold a couple weeks ago and I was like, damn it, I think I might have had my last uh, outdoor hang. And I, no, I don't think so. I think there's a few left. Free State of Jones was very disappointing. I, not when I saw it. When I, uh, It disappointed me essentially as soon as I saw the trailer. I remember hearing the movie was going to be made and being excited about it because that's a very interesting story. But sadly, uh, the film itself, even by the time it came out, I was like, oh, this kind of looks like they fucked the dog. And then I watched it and it fucked the dog. Uh, mainly just because of how dreary it is. Like, more than anything else, more than any uh, historical inaccuracy or anything, it's just very uh, dull. Uh, McConaughey is, is just one of those boring, righteous, uh, kind of Gandhi-like uh, uh, hero figures who is very, very uh, uh, boring to watch. Because we're just supposed to observe and bask in his virtue. Like, look at this good southern white man. Which, of course, the fact that McConaughey casts himself in that role it really does speak to the lib need, the liberal need to be seen as good. That that is like the presiding element of uh, like our culture of liberalism, and this is why so many people hate it and think that it's some sort of cultural Marxist conspiracy. It's just the incentive structure. If all if 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 if, if evil is inherent in our world, if we're fallen in the sense that capitalism is real and cannot be changed then the only uh, reason that bad things and good things happen is because there are bad people and good people. And it's about dividing them into those two groups and then one group kind of yelling at the other group. And so but part of that is establishing yourself as one of the good ones. And here's Matthew McConaughey literally playing a white southerner who, who leaves the Confederate Army in order to fight for uh, uh, black liberation in a, in a multiracial army. Oh my God, this is awesome. You know, it's fantasy. John Brown f fills out a very similar character. Like, he's the fantasy of virtue that the guy playing him is imagining he is, and the viewer, who of course imagines himself as the protagonist, imagines that they are. This reminds me of the fact that Brad Pitt produced 12 Years a Slave, and he also has a role in it. If you've seen that movie, there's one scene where Brad Pitt pays a Canadian carpenter who comes to build a, sh um, a barn uh, on the land of uh, Michael Fassbender's uh, plantation, and Fassbender is this monstrously awful slave owner, and uh, he, all Pitt does is give a little speech about how he thinks slavery is bad, and then he smuggles the letter from uh, Solomon Northrup home that gets him sprung out of slavery, and so he saves the day. It's like I'm gonna, we're gonna make, and it's hard to not think that he decided to make that movie to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to be 60 on Friday. Going to go to the park. Uh, enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, I actually just rewatched a little bit of the John Adams uh, TV series. And Giamatti is great, but it is just a baffling decision. The fact that they... It is... I mean, it's like almost perverse. Like, the gimmick seems to be with John Adams. That... Well, you guys know all the bullshit about the Revolutionary War. You know all the cliché stuff, right? Uh, all, uh, uh, and... What about the stuff that's like fell through the, the cracks? What about the stuff that's like less remembered? Let's appreciate that. And it's sort of this... And honestly, it's part of that, like... Uh, more than anything, it's part of that uh, cultural turn in the late 90s. The David McCullough, fucking Stephen Ambrose dad history uh, thing of looking back on America and like nodding our heads. 
We nodded our heads proudly at two things, the Founding Fathers and the Greatest Generation. Like, for American Revolution and the Constitution, well done. Uh, and also, oh, uh, way, way to go with that World War II. Just this smug self-congratulation. And that meant that there was a bunch of books about the Founding Fathers. And guys like uh, Joe Ellis became household names on the bestseller list. And McCullough wrote this book about Adams, and it really did seem to come down to, we know all the big stories, so what about one of the less-known guys? And that what that ends up being is that the documentary, or not the documentary, the, the series, it's six episodes, and it's, in one of them, he's just, like, going to France during the Revolutionary War to, like, just curtsy with some guys. Then there's a whole episode where he's the vice president and literally just sitting around. And then, uh, you know, he's got one episode as the president. And then they have an entire episode that's just him getting old because one of the things about John Adams is he lived to be, like, 92. He died on the same day as Jefferson. So they give him a whole, ep a whole episode of him just getting decrepit. And it's like, there, it's... It, it, more than anything to me, it says that the received wisdom we have about the, the greatest, the founding fathers, like, that dad history, that wig dad history we were getting both from school and the culture, about that, it was so banal, was so taken for granted, that all they could think to do is just pad this shit out. Because, like, these are interesting questions about the founding of this country. These figures did things that we live with that are interesting. And the insistence that the only lens to look through any of history is, is through the personal. These are the great guys and gals who made our history because it's a celebrity culture. These were the stars. The, all the stars are here. John Adams. Button Gwinnett. George Pick... Charles Pinckney. DeWitt Clinton. Elbridge Jerry. And G. Smith and the Saturday Night Live bat. So all they could do is they could spend an episode on him just his teeth falling out. Because there's nothing else to talk about. It's like, yep, Hamilton said this, and then Jefferson said this, and wasn't it a battle of ideas? Like, it's just vapid. But Giamatti's very good. The episode where they debate the Constitution is pretty good. But that's always great. Like, 1776 is a fun movie to watch, because that's a really cool story. And you got the big big rousing speeches and everything, and everyone's sweating and wearing wigs. But that's because we... And and, it, and the first episode shows the, the early in his career moment when he defended the uh, Boston Massacre of British soldiers, and that was true because John Adams was Mr. Damn Norms. Mr. Two Damn Norms. Because the Federalist tradition that he helped establish that turned into the Whigs and then the Republicans and then transmogrified into the Democrats now is this super ego, this structural, uh, this uh, uh, impulse to build structures of, of, of coercion but towards a productive goal. Now you can say, yes, exploitation, correct, but they're operating in a, in a world where exploitation is inevitable. Exploitation is built into human existence. They do not believe in the transcendental power of a species coming into its own being. Why would they? They were, they were before that was a coherent concept. This was, they were before the working class had come into its own and brought with them the historical agency that had eluded every other class before them. How would they know not to do that? So they thought they were doing good. And, and in terms of they were looking out for the best interests 
of the project of American capital extraction and surplus extraction. And, but that means that they're going to restrain things. And they're going to adhere to norms and traditions. And there's the, the id, the, the demand of like the average American, since that's who now who gets to call the shots, is more land, please. More land. Land, land, land. Or if they're stuck in the city, in a wage relationship, more patronage jobs. Uh, my cousin needs to get a job at, uh, at, the, at the cholera pit. And also more wages at uh, labor jobs, at private jobs. Eventually, as it coheres into a working class. So that's why I think it's silly to root for one side or another in this stuff. And I understand why you have instincts. And like in certain cases, I think you should have rooting interests. You know, like the Civil War, that's a clear one. But when you're talking about something like, you know, those Jeffersonian and, and those those revolving uh, conceptions like that generated America's contradictions and then overcame them and created new ones, you can't pick one or the other because they cannot come separated. They're inevitable. I got a uh, polar, the king, I got the king. Uh, no, I think if you're going to make them, I'm trying to think, like, if I wanted to do anything about the, the founding generation, which would be tough because I don't find it terribly interesting, because it really was just a bunch of fancy doily boys uh, getting together and creating a play-acting government, creating a fake, uh, a fake little uh, fun-time Play-Doh government. Because their built-in assumption is that the structures they had imposed would limit popular participation in government enough to ensure that it was essentially a, a talking house for a, what they imagined to be unified ruling class, because those morons thought that their, their refinement and adherence to values was a byproduct of their social position, and that it would be the reality, and it would, that it would form the reality of their class collaboration. Forgetting entirely, because they couldn't even realize it, that no, those fancy beliefs you think you hold are generated by your economic interests. And those interests are in conflict, and as the conflict deepens, the ability for these play fake pseudo-political institutions to to uh, restrain, uh, to uh, redirect energy and reduce friction is going to collapse, and the thing is going to bust open. And it started to shake and shimmer immediately. I mean, they fucking write the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and then second term, third term, Adams uh, puts out the creates the Alien and Sedition Act. It says it's illegal to say mad thing, mean things about me on the internet because the guy said that I was a hermaphrodite. And it's not just like that was John Adams. The reason it was John Adams is because Washington didn't need to do it because he was George Washington. As soon as he was gone, replaced by a reduced figure, a guy didn't have his aura, uh, the game changed. And Washington himself, who by that time had been like converted from a guy who thought he could transcend politics like all these idiots did, to, by the end of his second term, a convinced Federalist, approved of the Alien and Sedition Act. And the whole thing started breaking apart. And the thing that solidified it for a little bit was the 
uh, twin attack, tw the twin moves of the uh, Louisiana Purchase and then the War of 1812, which settled the boundaries of America in the near term. Because those were both Jeffersonian uh, democratic moves towards accumulation of uh, land so that the yeoman fantasy could be pers could persist, the, the uh, myth that Greg Grandin uh, talks about. And those two, war those two acts created an equilibrium out of the instability of the, of the conflict between the land-hungry, expansion-hungry, conflict with Indians-hungry Democrats, Republicans, Democrat-Republicans, and the Federalists who wanted to uh, intensify uh, market uh, financialization and trade, uh, specifically trade with England. And Louisiana Purchase bought so much land that it essentially reduced the investment that the Jeffersonians had in preserving certain things, you know, because early on Jefferson was freaking out about everything. Like they opened a post office and he's like, this is tyranny because the, the size of the country, like the ability to expand within it was still up in the air. How are they going to limit? Like the war kind of started, the Revolutionary War, the real starting pistol was the proclamation of 1763, which set the Appalachian Mountains as the limit of colonial expansion into North America. That was, as soon as that happened, the conflict between the United States and Great Britain was inevitable. And they were worried about that happening again. Like the worry about tyranny that, that moved Jefferson was really a worry about the uh, federal government in the, in the form of this mercantile class in the New England and New York limiting our ability to grow the way that the British had. And Louisiana Purchase relieved a lot of that pressure. Now, Louisiana Purchase also got it into the heads of the Democrats that we could have the whole thing, which led to the War of 1812, which was a Democratic attempt to take Canada. That was why we really went to war in 1812. I know they say impressment of sailors in the history books, but that's like how they say that we went to World War I because of the Lusitania, even though that happened two years before we declared war. And the Lusitania was sunk in 1915. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson ran for re-election on a campaign slogan of, he kept us out of war. That's how much the Lusitania was in people's minds when they were voted for president. And then a year later, but anyway, it's like one of those just so stories. The real thing was Canada. We got Louisiana, we're gonna, get, we're gonna extend freedom, our ability to persist in a fantasy of freedom, north. And then it was the, the War of 1812, it discredited the Federalists because they freaked out so bad that the first real secession movement in America was the Hartford Convention of Federalists and, and High Federalists uh, from New England who contemplated a secession of the United States in protest of the War of 1812 because they wanted to make a trade union with Britain. They did not want to fight Britain. And then it was the terms of the War of 1812, which was essentially, okay, never mind. It was a slap of the hand, getting out of the cookie jar from the UK, like, okay, you, you got it, you got it, you got Louisiana, you're done. And that satisfied the Whig, uh, the Federalists, and you got that brief little moment of, of fantasy, the, the era of good feeling. The last time that the president ever ran for election effectively unopposed was James Monroe's re-election campaign. Uh, in 1820. And that was because the, the, the actual material underlying conflict between the two factions was momentarily uh, 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 at a stalemate. 
What broke the stalemate was the explosion of the profitability of, culti of cotton cultivation in the South. Because that first generation of, uh, of, of, uh, of Democrats, the Jeffersonians, were all operating at some level on the assumption that slavery was a short-term solution, that it would give way over time. Because it was, its profitability was limited. For one thing, it was deeply extractive and damaging to the soil that it operated in, which means there was a sh shelf life of, there was, there was a limit to how long you could actually get, uh, get profit out of particular acreages. And it was incredibly, incredibly labor-intensive. Things like the cotton engine and other, and, and the opening of international trade, and the infusion of capital into the South made it more profitable. And what that meant was that slavery became more salient as an economic system, separate from the greater American political economic system, like the free labor that operated that that the uh, assumptions of government within constitution assumed, because slavery was just sort of left as this thing that existed but was un addressed in the Constitution because they could they had to, they couldn't get an agreement on it so they just punted it but they figured it's okay we'll always be able to figure it out because it's always going to be this little tea room full of uh, fancy lads which it immediately broke up into a real political fight because there were real stakes which they didn't assume would exist because they were dumbasses because they were idealist dumbasses but you can't blame them because they had to act that way the Constitution had to be what it was at the time because of the unique situation that the United States was being formed out of states that were separate, imagined themselves to be separate, organized governmentally separately, and had this, uh, conflicting economic interests, conflicting populations, conflicting not, uh, not and, and or at the, at the very least, somewhat different cultures, and none of them with the power to militarily overawe any of the others. They had to compromise. Like Everything we got in the Constitution, we had to get. It should have been destroyed by the Civil War, like the order that uh, that it had supported until then. When it no longer, when it failed to, uh, the it's, the Constitution failed its first real stress test. And the fact that we have had like a uh, synthesized, like completed bourgeois revolution after uh, after Reconstruction ended. And we haven't had that like degree of conflict within the body politic until now. Uh, we've gone this long without it happening again, but it's built in. It's built in, and like this this presidency, this Biden Trump uh, Biden presidency, where he's the he's the king and Mitch McConnell is the prime minister, and there's a global fucking pandemic and economic collapse happening. I don't know how uh, it'll be very interesting to see. I say. That's for sure. It's it's going to take another stress test. That's for sure. Hell yeah, six hundred sixty-six viewers. Oh my god! Somebody's talking about who's most evil. It doesn't matter, man. Andrew Jackson profoundly evil person but his position in society his position within cap the emerging system of uh, of ex of surplus extraction that was being created in North America the great project that he was part of threw him up because he fit the moment he was willing to do the things that the moment demanded so yes 
evil, but because the times were evil. The times are always evil. The people in the positions of power are there because they accommodate and support evil. They have made the choice. They've justified it in their mind somehow, either by being a sociopathically self-absorbed, or if they're a nice tea drinker and a nice well-behaved boy or girl, a nice sublimated individual, they convince themselves it's because they're a smart or good person. And that they have made the right choice. And that, hey, this is bad, but it could be worse. And if it wasn't me, it'd be somebody who's less smart, who's less compassionate, like, I, like Obama. And they're all going to be empty shells. They are empty gels that just contain the evil of the age to direct it. That's all they are. If they weren't, they wouldn't be there. They would not seek the job. They would not have made the compromises they made in their lives. They were only able to do that because they were steamrolling over their own human impulses. They were steamrolling over their awareness of any connection they had to anybody but themselves. And the, the, and the thing is, is that that is... The reason they're in that position, those exalted positions, is that we're selecting for that behavior in our social order, in our, in our economic order. So those will be the people who will rise. So their evil is to be assumed. It's not to be judged one against the other. The times are what determine the degree of like vileness, the degree of per, like personal sadism is, is, is honestly secondary to the whole thing, and usually a byproduct of the trauma uh, of, of living in those times which were more which were less civilized than ours because like Andrew Jackson is the only president who ever actually led a coffle of slaves on the Natchez Trail actually leading slaves to a market he did that the only president we know of and also of course the only president murdered people in a duel including one duel where he basically cheated by wearing a very a bulky coat and standing to the side and then shot the guy in the dick but that was a time of slave coffles and dick shooting. So only one good at coffling slaves and shooting dicks will rise. People who, th I think a lot of people like to think about the evil of, of, of great figures of history because they imagine, well, I might not be consequential. I might not be remembered. I, my, my, my life might be filled with frustrations and failures and inadequacy, but at least I'm a good person. Well, your goodness is... I mean, in a way, yes. Like, you can't bring yourself to do the things these people can do. And that does make you a better person. But, also, you probably didn't find yourself in a position where making the wrong choice was that easy. If you're born into wealth and privilege, you can do the wrong thing very easily. It's harder to do. You have to commit to doing the wrong thing if it's work. And that's why a generation of, of uh, that's why the A.J. Soprano syndrome, that's what the fail sons are. You're not willing to do what it takes to make it in this world, this sociopathic hell realm. And so, but you're also addicted to the pleasure of it. You're addicted to the consumer uh, 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 indulgence, the soporific of consumption and ease of life. So you don't push through to find something, play someplace where you can affect work and challenge yourself to do an alternative. And so Hunter Biden is a perfect example of this. He couldn't do the, like, Bo Biden was evil. Bo Biden got one of the DuPont scions, a, a sweetheart Epstein-level deal for raping his child, his three-year-old child. Uh, he was a fucking scumbag. He would have he allowed uh, DuPont to put uh, Teflon directly in your asshole and your families. 
they would they would they would allow uh, a Dupont to bring a truck to your house and waterboard you with Teflon because he was going to be president someday. Oh, oh, got to answer cancer. Wrong. Oh, owned. Uh, Hunter had every chance to do what Bo wanted to do, but he couldn't bring himself. But he was too addicted to ease to do anything hard. So what did he do instead? The second easiest thing, destroying himself with drugs and sex as a distraction. And of course, as a way to punish yourself because in the long run, you only get more miserable because those pleasures lose their luster over time, inevitably. And the thing is, is that that's really the choice we have. Because we live so atomized lives, because the alternative, like, doing a life, living a life where you can find meaning through labor, not necessarily the work you do to live, but like a work towards making the world better, a, wor a working towards a world where your labor is less exploited and you have more free time and you're more free from alienation. You can put that energy there. If you think that if there's a if there's a path before you that is, can plausibly get you to that, you can always choose that. The problem is, for millions of Americans, because of our social atomization, because of the decline and the collapse of the working class as any kind of self-organizing principle within a society without a self-aware a self identity, all the options are be evil or do nothing. Be evil or distract yourself. Be evil or delude yourself. Be evil or drown your brain in in uh, fantasia and and um, and rude pleasure, and find yourself hating yourself every moment of it, but with and more over time. Because the third option, the channel of those things into you know meaningful, uh, rewarding, soul crafting work, is not as real. In fact, it's invisible. You would have to talk to other people. You'd have to live near other people. You'd have to live for and with other people in order to spark that as an op option. And instead, we don't have that. We have the despair, and and the uh, you either despair or you sell yourself. You you despair or you uh, you you kill something within yourself. You cut you sever the ties that bind you to everyone else, like J.D. Vance and fucking. Uh, hillbilly elegy where he's that whole movie is just him severing the connections between him and everyone who ever loved him so that he can get ahead and that's why he's the disgusting reptilian scumbag he is now if he'd stayed with that family it's not like he would have had a good life he probably would have ended up drinking turpentine and dying of fentanyl addiction that's because those are your options Some people get out, some people, may, if they have like an extraordinary drive or talent that they are aware of and have an ability to pursue that isn't interrupted or destroyed by happenstance, they can make out of there. But those are the broadly the two options you have. And like if you choose to kill that part of you and you are adept at the rituals of, you know, the managerial class, you go to college and you come out a dull-eyed, uh, liberal or conservative freak. And you channel that freakitude into uh, some sort of political sadism and a uh, life pursuing misery for everybody. If you don't, you come out 
stunned and stunned and, and, and failed to launch and you just go back to your mom's basement or you uh, curl up uh, and you retreat to the internet and, and sucker your fantasies of, of virtue because you are uh, unable to find a virtuous life within the options given to you and that's most people and then there are the very few lucky who uh, are able to uh, marry any kind of you know autonomy uh, uh, to marry participation in the market with the ability to maintain any spiritual connection to the world around you and the people around you that's very difficult but the people who are successful but the people who decide can't beat them join them and cover cut the connection the ones who go to college that's your ruling class that's your managerial ruling class those are your democrats the ones who uh, reject it, either because they aren't able to apply themselves intellectually in the way that they want, they can't sit there and type, they can't get enough words per minute, they don't understand how, what, they can't get their head around the technical elements, or they can't get their head around the uh, rituals of uh, etiquette. They either, what, maybe they, if, they, if they have hustle and, uh, and connections and luck, maybe they uh, start a boat ownership place. Maybe, maybe, yeah, like these are the beautiful voters, the non-college educated wealthy people who make up the base, the most consistent base of Trump support, but also the ones who don't vote for Trump, but maybe have, you know, a uh, HVAC job or, or something like that. A few remaining working class, work with your hand jobs that, uh, that are available to people. Uh, but then the rest, if you have cut the connection, you are going to be a criminal. You're going to take your disregard for social forms out on the society itself, which is a all of these are the rational response to the horrors that we're dealing with. And that's the monstrosity of it. So lucky my brain happens to have the right shape to make tech money. Correct. You have nothing to do with it. Wherever you are in this hierarchy, it, it is it's, it's the, uh, a throw genetic dice, and not just genetic dice, the dice, the genetic, the genetic dice of everyone you grew up around and with, and interacted with, who shaped you in the way they did. So only podcasters are virtues, is what I'm saying. No, I'm not. See, once again, none of this is about virtue. None of this is about virtue. No one is anywhere that they are because of virtue. That's the fantasy of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism said, yeah, you see this random spray of people where a bunch of people are fucking miserable all the time and a relatively small handful of people get to hold on to some little chunk of, of uh, indulgent pleasure on the top end of a distribution curve? Yeah, that's awful. But at base, some of them are there because it's all there. All of them are there for a reason. And it makes sense. And as Matt Iglesias said about buildings collapsing in Bangladesh, it's okay. Because the liberal and, and the conservative says, yeah, uh, smart people succeed, but uh, dumb people fail. And if, that's, and if it, that distributes itself along racial lines, well, facts don't care about your feelings. Look at this IQ chart. If you're a conservative, you say, or if you're a liberal, like you say, yes, people are suffering. Why? Well, if, it's, if you're a member of a minority group, it's because of racism. And that's too bad, but it's also part of our society. Darn. Oh, between the world and me, am I right, folks? Uh, and now we even are expanding that to white people with the hillbilly elegy, which is hillbilly elegy is a perfect copy of uh, a white version, a white like identity politics, uh, like a, a white uh, Scotch Irish 
ID Paul, like lived experience version of like a one of those movies that's essentially a uh, an extended college admissions essay, like uh, about about like Antoine Fisher, about somebody struggling from poverty and then finding success in the marketplace because of their stick to itiveness, their their adherence to good values in the face of trouble, and in the in the racialized uh, 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 narrative that liberals imbibe. These people break out, the families are held back by racism and the legacy of racism. And you watch that and you go, damn, that's too bad, but the system can still reward somebody who has something else. These virtues, and those virtues make him worthy in a way that even the people that we pity who don't make it, we can't, aren't worthy. Hillbilly Elegy, instead of it being racism, it's, well, the factory went, it's a wave towards class, like they're poor. Why they're poor? We're not going to talk about it because we can't reduce it to racial category, which is what we like to describe things with because we want to be liberal. We want to make it about personal animus. We want to make it about beliefs and, and ideas as why people treat each other the way they do, not material conditions generating relationships between people that they then follow, like, like um, scripts that are determined by relationships, material relationships. No, no, no. It's it, personal ideas. So. But, so they just say they're poor as an identity. Poor as an identity. Like fried bologna sandwiches and swimming in the creek. This is, these are class markers the same way that like hair braiding and uh, you know, uh, cookouts are in you know, like menace to society or, uh, or boys in the hood or something. Uh, and there are the people who fail and struggle even though they should succeed, but it's just there's something wrong with them. Like Amy Adams, his mom in the Hellbilly Elegy, she's smart, she's a nurse, but she's heroin addicted. And why is she heroin addicted? She's just, she didn't have the strength. She wasn't able, she, was, she blamed other people and she, there was something wrong with her. J.D. Vance doesn't do that, he's a good person. He's better than her. He is better than her in a fundamental way. And I say there's no virtue here. No virtue, I'm not virtuous. In the sense that you're trying to talk about. The alternative to submitting either to becoming evil or to being just ground to dust uh, is to fight, and we don't know how to fight. But I am saying we will learn to fight. But not through thinking it out on here, not through hashing it out on here, not through pushing anybody to the left or building meme armies or determining the correct position on issues. It's going to be, it's going to be stiffening the sinews with uh, a lived experience, ironically enough, of struggle. Six, not, if not successful struggle, hopeful. A struggle with a horizon. Instead of just the, the, the seeming over-determined uh, cascade of misery that surrounds us. This sense that before us everything is impossible. And yeah, if you step back, it all looks impossible. It looks like an impenetrable forest, but you got to get closer to find the chinks in the army, to find the exhaust port, to shoot the fucking uh, missile into the Death Star with. And you're only going to be there if you're there, not here. Uh, Alright guys, my battery is almost gone, so i got to go. Peace and chicken grease.